in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So open the scriptures. These opening words, the beginning in particular, no doubt refer to the temporal origin of creation, meaning its beginning in time. In other words, there was a time in which there was no time, nor space or matter. Beginning, then, refers to the point in which the cosmos, the heavens, and the earth came to be. Now, regardless of one's stance of when it came to be, we all agree it came to be. There is, however, another sense in which we can interpret these words, the beginning. I was surprised to discover this week that there is a long tradition of interpreting in the beginning not merely as a reference to the temporal origin of creation, but also to the reason for creation. Beginning, that is, not merely as a reference to some discrete point in time, but beginning as the principle or basis or rationale for creation in the first place. Now, an example might help. I could say, the movie begins at 7.15 p.m., using beginning in the temporal, time-bound sense. But I could also say, hearing a day in the life was the beginning of my love for the Beatles, using the term in a similar yet distinct way. It was the temporal beginning of my love for the Beatles, yes, but more so in the sense that it was the source of or origin of that love. Buying their records, endlessly playing their records, making my wife listen to me endlessly play their records, all sprung from that original source. Now when the scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's using beginning in much the same way. The fear of the Lord is the source of a wise life. Not in the sense of being the first step preceded by a second and a third, but in the lasting sense of providing its basis or root. Apart from this abiding source, there is no wisdom to be found. It is the principle from which all right and good living proceeds. Thus, there are two senses of the word beginning, the temporal sense and the substantial sense, as we'll call it. Now, in addition to the temporal sense, not in replacement of it, in the beginning has also been read in the substantial sense as a veiled reference to the ultimate purpose or rationale for creation. Behind the temporal beginning of the cosmos, there lies a still greater beginning, It is the reason or rationale that precedes the act of creation as its goal and destiny. In other words, there is a divine plan, a beginning from which and for which God creates all things. Now, this beginning before the beginning is what the Apostle Paul calls the mystery of God's will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. 
this rationale for creation had been kept hidden in God, stored away in his eternal counsels to be revealed only at the fullness of time. The claim that the apostle makes then is this. In Christ and through the Spirit, the Father's purpose in creation has been revealed. The storehouses of divine wisdom and knowledge have been opened up to us mortals. Hence, the apostle prays in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, which we looked at last week. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So to fathom the beginning that accounts for the beginning, one's mind must be transformed. The carnal mind pushed aside by the spiritual mind that discerns spiritual things. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This mystery of the divine will, the rationale behind creation, is declared to, our pa- declared to us rather in our passage about Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and himself the beginning. I want, however, to take the long way around to get there. So we have this secondary, more mysterious sense of the beginning. And though interesting, I would be tempted to dismiss it as nothing more. A provocative line of thought that nonetheless cannot be corroborated. Yet, quite surprisingly, the scripture indulges it explicitly in the New Testament, and more obliquely in the Old Testament. Now, it comes to the fore in Proverbs 8, in the figure of wisdom. And this wisdom that we find in the Proverbs is uniquely associated with the beginning. In fact, it is styled as the beginning itself. So, speaking in its own voice, Wisdom says, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, from everlasting, I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. So prior to the beginning, in the temporal sense, the earliest times of the earth, as our passage says, this wisdom was present, having been established from eternity. It was, depending on your translation, possessed or acquired or brought forth by God prior to the creation, before the mountains were settled, while he had not yet made the earth or the first dust of the world. So here we have it. Before the beginning, wisdom is claiming to be the beginning. Now this is made explicit in the NIV translation, which reads Proverbs Chapter 8, verse 22, 
the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. Now here is the secondary meaning of the beginning. The temporal beginning pertains to the earliest times of the earth. Wisdom is prior to that as the first or the beginning of God's ways. So it cannot refer to the temporal origin of things because it's present from everlasting. Hence, wisdom is the first or the beginning of the divine ways in the sense that it provides the rationale or reason for creation. In some way, wisdom accounts for creation. Not only its beginning in time, but the deep structure and coherence within it. It also bears a unique relationship to God, this wisdom does. It precedes time and space and matter, established as it was from everlasting. Now that raises questions. Is it some quasi-divine principle or a creature generated with respect to the creation? Also, the passage says it was brought forth, not explicitly created as the universe was. So it is, a, is it a creature brought into being by some other mode of existence or some other mode of creation? Or is it an emanation or diffusion of the divine nature? Questions abound. Now one thing, however, is clear. Wisdom was instrumental in creation. It was beside God in the creative process. The passage continues, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies of above. above. When the springs of the deep became fixed. When he set forth the sea, its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. So wisdom was beside God in the beginning, as, the passage says, a master workman. Now, communicated in the metaphor is the notion that wisdom is the right ordering power, one, in which God delights, and two, by which he creates. In other words, creation comes into existence through wisdom, bearing its stamp and reflecting its more original harmony and perfection. Put another way, we could say that the cosmos is a created expression of this ancient wisdom. Its order and proportion and symmetry are present within creation, to be seen within the natural world. And one would almost have to be blind not to recognize it. Psalm 104 is a celebration of the wisdom reflected in creation. The psalmist surveys the natural world and marvels at its wise 
order. In poetic beauty, he surveys the hydraulic cycle, which waters the earth and keeps it green. He turns to also the nutrient cycle from which every creature is fed. And of course, the cycle of the heavens by which we order our time and our lives. Now he, the psalmist, contemplates this beauty and harmony and he cries out. Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, how many are your works in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. I've been reading recently on natural selection. And one of the problems it has is that it cannot account for the inherent form and self-organizing tendency within nature. Natural selection, it is supposed, is random, free to lead creatures in whatever direction it pleases. Yet creatures, indeed the entire created order, display a marvelous and consistent order. Again and again, amidst the constant change and fluctuation, creatures tend to these given and specific forms. Why? Well, there seems to be a rationality deep within creation, deeper than biology and deeper than physics. Matter is not dead some mindless genetic code obeying purely happenstance laws, but endowed with its own logic and coherence. The deep structure within creation, the scriptures would have us believe, reflects the wisdom from which it came, the master workman through whom it was made. So this structure we see points to a still more harmonious, more original order through which it was created. This wisdom is the beginning of the beginning. It's rationale and reason and coherence. Thus, central to a right and a good life is to discern this wisdom present within creation and to order oneself by it. There is a moral order implanted deep within things that if one can attune themselves to, they are sure to prosper. Hence, wisdom says at the end of our passage, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 31, he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, how does one find this wisdom which leads to life and the favor of the Lord? Well, by not being wise in their own eyes, that is, confessing their ignorance and instead fearing the Lord. In obedience to Him, this wisdom buried within things reveals itself. Hence, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Solomon says to his son, My son, If you will receive my words and treasure my commands within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding." As tantalizing 
as this figure of wisdom is, the first and established from everlasting, the revelation is nevertheless incomplete. And therefore the interpretations that follow from it are also incomplete. Philo, who was a contemporary of the apostles, made this wisdom to be something like the created creator. Not God, but nevertheless responsible for creation. And we can see how he would have come to that conclusion. Now, others came to associate this wisdom with the law, the Torah. God looked into the Torah, one rabbi said, and created the world meaning that the Torah pre-exists creation and that creation comes into being for it. In other words, the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt and the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai culminated, culminating in the giving of the law is the reason why God created the world. It was for that event so that this law, this eternal law, could be manifested in creation. Now, uh, these are quite provocative interpretations, um, and I bring them up just to show that this reason behind all things remained obscure, locked away in the divine councils. There's enough revelation to get one questioning, but not enough revelation to provide the answer, until, that is, the beginning became Incarnate. We have in Revelation these words, chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Again, the beginning is used here not in the temporal sense, but in the substantial sense. Christ is not the first creature the beginning of the creation of God, but instead the reason or the basis for creation itself. He is the eternal beginning behind the temporal beginning that accounts for creation. He is wisdom, present from everlasting, the word, the logos, through whom the entire created order comes to be, the word which enlightens Every man. Christ, then, is at the heart of all things, as their beginning and end, the Alpha and the Omega. Now, coming to our passage, it reads, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So having been created through him, all things mirror or image him in their own creaturely way. Christ is the master workman, returning to our previous passage, in whom the cosmos came to be. Christ, we might say, is the wisdom inscribed into the very fabric of creation. 
He is the original divine wisdom of which our universe is a created expression. Its beauty and harmony point to him who hung upon the tree for our salvation. Now, to be sure, creation is the work of the entire trinity. We find that already present within the Genesis account. There is God who creates by his word and his spirit who hovers over the face of the water. But we would be mistaken if we did not also acknowledge that creation bears a unique relationship to the Son, the second person of the Trinity. It comes into being, as our passage says, through him and for him. Now here we come back to the substantial meaning of the beginning. Now on the one hand, it means the rationale. And that is expressed in the phrase, through him. Creation is given its logic and coherence by Christ, the wisdom and the word of God. Now on the other hand, it also can uh, mean reason or purpose. And that is expressed in the phrase, for him. So, creation derives its intelligibility from Christ. Its order and its harmony and, and, and the way, the reason rather, things are the way they are, we can trace that back to Christ. But also, in a different sense, we can trace back to Christ the very reason for creation itself. The very reason for its existence. There is something rather than nothing because it is for him, for Christ. So it speaks thus to the goal of creation, our passage does. It was not created just to be created, but for a purpose. And that purpose is bound up with Christ. As the Apostle Paul declares in a passage we've already referenced, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, God has made known his eternal purpose in creation, the mystery of his will. And that purpose is to unify all things, visible and invisible, heaven and earth, in Christ, in order to bring them under the good and wise rule of God. So what is creation for? Well, it's for this, that it might be summed up and unified and brought together as one in Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, the scripture says, through the apostle Peter. And thus the world came to be that he might be its head and ruler. Hence the title that the apostle assigns to Christ in verse 15 of our passage in Colossians. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now in its inception, the firstborn was understood literally as the eldest coming before the rest of the siblings. 
But in ancient times, and you're familiar with this, the firstborn acquired a special privilege among other siblings, namely as the inheritor of his father's estate. Thus, the firstborn also came to be used in the sense of importance or supremacy. So the firstborn doesn't have to necessarily be the first temporally, the first in chronological order, but the firstborn is the first in rank. Hence, the scripture says, speaking of the Messiah, Psalm 89, verse 27, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it speaks not to the temporal order, but to the prominence and status of the firstborn. He is the highest of the kings of the earth. And moreover, the firstborn designates, in a theological sense, a unique relationship with God. It is in this relationship that the firstborn, uh, that, that the firstborn has with God that gives him his special significance. So far from meaning that Christ is the first creation, chronologically first, followed by others, who, though he might be greater than, he's nevertheless a creature with, it means that he is preeminent and supreme over creation, that all things were made through him and for him. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now we can tie all of this up, this exalted truth about Christ as the wisdom and word of God, and bring it to our hearts along those lines, through him and for him. Through him, remember, speaks to the deep rational structure embedded within creation. As we put attention to the creation, the inherent form and symmetry and elegance within it begins to emerge. Take, for instance, something very simple and mundane as phyllotaxis, which is the arrangement of leaves on the stem of a plant, which invariably obeys certain mathematical laws. There's an order to it. Or something like the sixfold symmetry of a snowflake. They're also unique, but they have this perfect form. Or the amazing hexagonal architecture of a beehive. Another awesome but mundane instance of this harmony and form and order within creation. Think also of more exalted things. Uh, the laws of physics. Um, the As we mentioned earlier, the processes, the systems that govern our world. Now this wisdom, this order is everywhere to be found and what it does is it witnesses to Christ who is the wisdom of God. And so as one discovers this created wisdom, they are led up to uncreated wisdom. The harmony and order and beauty that we encounter here is but a sign pointing to something, rather someone more original. Thus, because creation is through Christ, it is also an avenue that leads us into the knowledge of Christ. He is the wisdom buried in the heart of all things. 
Thus, the creation has a role to play in our day-to-day spirituality. The relationship we have to him is not confined to merely religious things in the traditional sense. He's not encountered only in some narrow, dusty corner of the world, but everywhere and in all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the way the Apostle Paul puts it, and here is how the great poet Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it in his poem, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the feature of men's faces. So there Christ is, in ten thousand places, lovely to our spiritual senses through his creation. Now Hopkins adds an important feature. He concludes by saying, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. Creation is an image of Christ, and Christ is the image of the Father. The Son mirrors back to the Father his own infinite perfection, and creation is a reflection of that perfection, an image of the image, a word of the word, a created rationality of the uncreated rationality, who is the rationality of the Father. So through nature, we are led up to Christ, and through Christ, we are led to true knowledge of the Father. And so it's quite clear then how this through him also forms the basis of our interaction with other disciplines of knowledge. Now we can sometimes adopt an antagonistic posture toward the natural sciences, but we don't have to. There's nothing to fear because all creation was made through Christ and therefore all roads lead back to Christ. Whatever the world turns up, ultimately it witnesses to him in whom all things hold together. So do we need discernment? Yes. Do we need wisdom? Yes. But do we need fear or antagonism? No. Because as Gerard Manley Hopkins says, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Now, in addition to the through him, we also have this for him which speaks, as we said, to Christ's preeminence over all things. He is the firstborn and the head over all creation. Here, we are directed toward our mission. Christ died and rose again to reconcile all things to himself, as we will discover next week. The creation is through him, but it is not yet for him in the fullest sense of the word. It remains tragically and stubbornly alienated and hostile to him. And as the means of reconciliation, we have been given the gospel message. It is the announcement that Christ has brought peace to this wayward cosmos and that it can be reunited to its beginning, its reason, its rationale through the blood of the cross. It has been put into our care to make it known. 
to proclaim to all creation that Christ Jesus is Lord. So we share the good news of reconciliation that creation might once again be for him. It's beginning and it's end. As Christ has commissioned us, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Hence we go. And we go to preach this message to all creation. Not merely men and women, but angels and powers, animals and insects, into the farthest reaches of the cosmos. All things have been created through him and for him. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We turn now to communion, the place of fellowship with Christ, the beginning and the firstborn. And we're reminded that we too were once alienated from him, opposed to him in evil deeds. But he has reconciled us through his body and blood to present us before the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. We have been restored to our beginning, the reason and rationale for our existence. That is Christ himself. He is our life. So come, take the elements and draw near to him, the image, the wisdom of God, who is your life.